I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud, say them clear, for the whole round world to hear. Welcome to The Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and today I have a very special guest with me to discuss uh, the... Lusiads of Luis de Camoens, which we've discussed on this podcast before. If you have not heard the episode entitled, I think, The Real Little Mermaid Was Indigenous, maybe you should go back and listen to that. Uh, and you can hear my little take on this epic poem and the depiction that is found there in Canto 9. Toward the end, right, the, the Portuguese adventurers are rewarded by Venus for their discoveries with a kind of sex party on a magic island with women who are depicted as kind of indigenous women, but also sea goddesses of the Gre Greco-Roman tradition. And reading this, for myself, right, I'm a uh, specialist mainly in Japanese literature, medieval Japanese literature, but I'm moving more into Iberian territory as well. And so reading this, I thought immediately of The Little Mermaid, uh, The Little Mermaid controversy, uh, and uh, realized, of course, in, in conjunction with uh, a lot of diary entries and things from Age of Exploration, conquistadors uh, really having their way with women, usually quite uh, in a non-consensual, uh, deplorable manner all around the world. It's clear that, you know, this the core of this uh, myth, uh, meme, that is actually being dramatized in the Disney movie, certainly, with all the candelabras and things, you know, the the scene where she sings, I wish I could be part of that world, uh, there's there's all kinds of age of exploration, vintage, you know, compasses. And is there even an astrolabe? I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but it's clear that, you know, this is an age of exploration, really, myth more than anything, even if the Norwegian or wherever kind of immediate source might have removed that and jumped right back to some kind of classical model, right? Um, so that's the kind of point that I made, not knowing the literature, not knowing uh, the the previous work scholarship that's been done. But sure enough, right, um, I'm in contact now with a scholar named, uh, are we, what should we call you today? Uh, Min. Yeah, Min's great. Min. All right. So I'm joined by Min, who is a real specialist in Comoinch. So uh, we will be able to deepen uh, the little amateur hour that I did before on this topic, right? So welcome 
first of all, to the kingless generation, Min. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, and what would you like to share about yourself with my listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Hello, Kingless Generation listeners. Um, my name is Min. I am originally from the Paris of Appalachia, also known as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, and I've been living in Paris for the past several years. Um, and I, so I actually don't work as much in Lucifone studies anymore, which is the term given to studies of Portuguese language, uh, literature and cultures. But, uh, I studied Portuguese, uh, at the University of Minnesota, um, and also, uh, did a semester at the University of Coimbra, which happens to be the same university as, Kamoish, the author we are talking about today, um, and very old university, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, and uh, and then Respect. I went on and uh, studied. Well, you know who else went there is uh, yeah. uh, Salazar. So <laughs> you know, loads I'm of Jesuit missionaries to Japan as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean. You know, one of the things they do when you go on the tour, you know, you show up at campus for the first time, you do like the campus tour and they're like, here's the cafeteria, you know, here's the, you know, whatever classrooms like and then they're also like and here's the prison where the Jesuits would like put bad students and it's just like <laughs> this like, <laughs> you know, and it's just like this white plaster room with like a small window white plaster. Oh, that's yeah. And then there's like there's like scratch marks in the walls and they're like oh. this is from like the students who lost their minds in here you're just like oh okay <laughs> like oh wow yeah there's a lot of um cave uh sites from uh ancient secret societies that also feature white plaster and uh writing of people experiencing sensory deprivation and so on that's that's fascinating oh, wow I would Another... I would believe that there are some deep secret societies in in Coimbra. That would not surprise me at all. Um Been on but yeah, so yeah, well, and actually this wasn't in Coimbra now that I think about it, but I was in uh I was sort of wandering around Sintra, which is another mm. very uh I mean Portugal's so old, so there's lots of spooky locations, but isn't it? Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. And I actually came upon what I think must have been the ruins of like a Masonic lodge mm. uh in the in the foothills out up there. Um wow. And yeah, it was really spooky. It was really it was really something like these these huge walls covered in like very strange sort of uh mid 19th century architecture but like um with all of these sort of symbols painted on them and the site was like totally abandoned and there was no signage or anything um but you Whoa. know portugal is like that sometimes but uh yeah yeah i'd love to try and figure out that was that just was an exactly impressionistic so. kind of reference to another topic that other topics i cover on this podcast but you you came right along with me there thank you that's really cool <laughs> yeah yeah i know I sorry what that would have well, been 
I know, right? I think about it all the time. Strictly um, speaking, it might not have really been Masonic. It might have been something else, but. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm just using sort of the broad, like, yeah, the broad category of it. Because Sintra mm -hmm. is like this place. Sintra is this little town outside of Lisbon where right. uh, there there was this mad uh, uh, wealthy man who built a, an enormous folly, which is like a sort of fake castle if you will um so there's all kinds of weird shit out there anyway um it's, just it's... to finish my well yeah oh, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, i was just before i forgot so yeah so the reason um uh you know i was so, i was so thrilled when i heard your episode about kamoi was um it's not something people usually talk about but i uh, so I went and got my a degree in comparative literature at uh, the Sorbonne in Paris. Um, and I wrote about uh, Camus, the Lusiades, um, and then Not something because I, I you listened to my podcast episode, surely. <laughs> no. you have already done Although this, I'm sure right? it would have been in... Yes, yeah. yes. I did this work uh, back in... The timeline. Uh, yeah. Gosh. A little while ago. Um that would have been amazing though. I wish, I wish right. podcasts like I'd known about podcasts like yours when I was working on this. Um, so yeah, I was uh, really interested in this question of like, you know, looking at reimaginings and rewritings of this foundational national myth, like, can they ever transcend the original sin, shall we say of the, of the original text itself? And, you know, especially when we're looking at a text like the Lusiads, which was a foundational text of Portuguese, right? Portuguese is known as the language of Camões. Um, looking at the story, like you you were saying, of of you know colonialism and conquest, um, and you know, in the mid twentieth century and onwards, there's been a lot of work uh by writers to reclaim or reappropriate or rewrite uh this foundational myth to make it more inclusive um and to be critical of the text itself and so um one of the things i was interested in interrogating is like how successful can this ever be or do we need to just throw out the myth entirely and and start over in a sense um Right. You so had two different kind of... writers who had actually kind of done rewritings of this Island of Love scene. Yeah, well, I mean, there it's one of the most popular episodes, um, in part because it's some of the strongest writing, in my opinion, in the whole uh, foundational myth. Um, and, you know, I, I know you talked about this a little bit, but just in case anybody, everybody should go back and listen to your to your episode on this. But um, just to reiterate, like, the Lusiads by Kamoish is like the foundational text um, for Portuguese literature in a lot of ways. It was one of the first texts that was written in Portuguese rather than, you know, in Latin, um, you know, that was sort of for a, a larger audience that really gained a lot of traction. And it also is literally like documenting the history of Portugal up to that point. Um and so then in the mid 20th century, you know, we're getting into uh, movements of anti-colonial movements. Um, we're getting into, uh, you know, sort of more, you know, 
more feminist, although she probably would hate that word, sort of understandings right. of um, of this literature. And that's when you really have the first wave of uh, recreations. And they're not the first, you know, then, you know, of course, going into the 70s and then the 80s, especially after the fall of the Portuguese dictatorship, the Estado Novo, you get a whole nother wave of, of these rewritings, which, um, you know, I haven't studied as they're, 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 they're a mixed bag quality. I will, I will say that second wave. Um, uh, but again, sort of interrogating this question of like, can we rewrite our foundational myth, like, and, and recreate it in interesting ways? Yeah, this amazing, um, you had a a white woman, basically, who spent a lot of time in Brazil and an Anglophone woman as well. Uh, and then you have an African revolutionary, uh, the first president of an independent Angola. And mm -hmm. they each have rewritten this story in their own ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's just to talk a little bit about sort of the, that first wave of rewriting. So. Um, so I looked at uh, two rewritings of this, this story, right, where the island of love, just to sort of give a quick overview, right, like the the Portuguese, the new Argonauts is, is literally what they're called, right? They they come to this island, they're, they're drawn there by Venus, who is the, uh, you know, goddess of love in Roman mythology, and in the story of the Lusiad, she's also... Uh, this character who like uh, is is sort of the protector and supporter of the Portuguese and so she, she you know to reward them she brings them to the Isle of Love they get off the boats they run onto the beaches and then we have a sort of hunting scene effectively mm. right if you think about like you know and I, I talk about this a little bit in, in the text I'll just you know if you think about like a tapestry you know sort of the classic yeah, you know hunting say. scene on a tapestry that's that's what it looks like except for instead of hunting game of course they are hunting the women of this island that's a great point. um yeah well and then there's this whole like very complex um part where there's it's like oh the women like they're running away but really they want it um Right. And so you know, they've yeah. all, they've been like pre-drugged by the arrows of uh, Eros as well or something. Right. There's yeah, this, exactly. Kamoan sets up this really he's very actually careful to like set it up in a way that it's like ostensibly um, consensual by somebody's kind of standards. <laughs> on a, on this yeah, surface level. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, one of the things that you should know about like the Lusiads in general is that it's like a very horny poem um, mm -hmm. and definitely this comes to like it's it reaches its height in Canto 9 in the the um, island of love story um, yeah and so these women like they're running away but really they want it and then you know of course the the men have their way with them so um, I was looking at you know Two of the early rewritings of this one comes from Elizabeth Bishop, who is a very well-known Anglophone poet, um, originally from Canada, um, who spent uh, nine years living in Brazil. Um, she fell in love with the Brazilian woman, uh, Lota de Suarez. Um, I would 
you know, whose family is extremely well politically connected. And so they kind of have a very, you know, at least materially very nice life um, in, in Portugal or in Portugal, in Brazil. Um, although she doesn't really understand the political context of what's going on around her at this time, mm. um, which is something that's really interesting, but she does learn to like read and write Portuguese, although she never really speaks it all that well. Um, and she takes it up. She at some point actually thinks about doing a translation of Kimoish herself, but, uh, Kimoish's sonnets, not the Lusiads. Um, but her translation is quite frankly dog shit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> respect to, the, to Bishop, but it's not very good. Oh, you said, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just, she, she doesn't really, but you know, she never studied She's an it, expat, like, right? I mean, she's kind of living there. She's not super pro-indigenous either. You said. No, I mean, God bless her. I mean, it's interesting. She's so, just to give you some of her years, um, you know, she was living there in like the fifties, right. She's in her, her early thirties at this point. Um, yeah. So she, you know, part of it is like the time, like, I think for her time, she would probably have been seen as like kind of progressive. But when we look back on her writings about the, you know, the Brazilian people, especially the indigenous people of Brazil now, like they read very cringe, right. It's, it's very, uh, othering, very, um uh, uh what's the word i'm looking for it's pa- patronizing at that patronizing yes yeah. yes yeah it's it's not and it's very like it's that sort of um stance that you see where it's like admiring like the humble native uh right. yeah which is like as if they've been somehow like frozen in time that she thinks that she can see the way that that indigenous people in brazil live at that time and, and somehow denial like, under- of synchronicity that's a word yeah. i learned recently oh that's really good that's yeah, really you good. don't live in the same time as i do you're in the past as a it's a power move. right yeah and so she like goes on like this trip you know up the amazon and she's just like wow it's like i'm going back in time you know it's this sort Mm -hmm. of attitude um but uh yeah so so this is 19 around 1951 1952 um and so she said she moves there and then she's there for until the the early 60s and so um so she takes it upon herself to rewrite uh the isle of love um and in her telling of it and i think in a minute once i kind of get through the overview maybe we can read parts of these poems um awesome. she so she rewrites it in a way um that really focuses on sort of the experience of women in this scene right she's kind of trying to draw out the fact that some of what we talked about with the isle of love scene that it is like it is effectively a rape scene right that the women are being designed uh, denied their own agency she uses this to go back to my tapestry before she uses this wonderful description 
of the scene as the tapestry and she kind of calls your attention to the fact that on the surface right a tapestry is very beautiful if you look on the other side it's a tangle of knots right and so mm -hmm. she's really trying to like draw your eye to sort of the messiness behind the scenes in in this in this story um but at the same time right she has this very patronizing view of indigenous women still um white lady and the yeah, very much like white lady syndrome and you know she engages in some of these same not same but some some of some of this a similar kind of deep personification that Kamoish is engaging in in the same way that Kamoish describes um you know the scene as a hunt she you know of, of animals presumably but in this case of women you know bishop she is describing the women as birds <laughs> right mm. um which is its own sort of you know not uncommon in poetry to, to make things into birds but you know so you'll, as you'll see when we get into it some of the language sort of resonates um with that yeah Sorry, I just talked a lot. So. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's your first writer there. And then you also have Agostinho Neto, right? Who's the first president yeah. of an independent Angola. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things I talk about in my research is that, you know, I can tell you, you know, I have collections of Bishop's poems. Uh, I have, you know, her journal, like, of her letters. Like, I have so right. much about yeah. bishop she's so well documented not so you know and i think i bring this up just to talk about sort of when, yeah. when you look at this kind of scholarship like the difference in the sourcing becomes so clear like the colonialism inherent in the archive really comes forward yeah why i wanted to ask why is why is neto's archive not public um, because he was the first president of angola <laughs> oh um sort of because it's this this political narrative that is very highly controlled. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then part of it, you know, and and, and his family, um, actually I, I haven't re researched recently, but um, you know, we're a very prominent political family in in Angola and um yeah, that was something you know, you said I, in your thesis that uh, you the archive is not available to the public. And yeah, so whatever papers there are, like, are not white, or you know, maybe if I were able to like go you to probably Angola have to go there and, and like, yeah, yeah, and like petition whomever to let me into some archives. Um, uh, you know, and I don't even know, like, I'm Sounds sure those like papers a... have been highly curated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be that would be worth doing, I'm sure, for yourself or someone else. Maybe some listener will get over there. Yeah. Shout, get into that shout out to. Yeah. If you're interested in sort of, you know, because I think this is uh, part of the story that I think is so often over. I mean, as much as any anglophone researcher in this case i did my work in french but as like is interested a in like lucifone literature <laughs> mm -hmm. and then b in like the colonial element of it like um you know and and just to give some context um uh angola was a colony of um 
of Portugal for many years, for decades. They had, there were multiple wars over this um, and eventually uh, it, it secured its independence. Um, I don't have the exact year. I think it was in the seventies um, towards the end of uh, the Estado Novo, towards the end of the Portuguese dictatorship. Um, and um, so, so, Agustinho Neto, he was a young man from, uh, you know, sort of middle class family. Um, and he, this is actually, I would love your thoughts on this because I, I feel like you, you have a better eye on these missionaries than I do. Oh, um, I in, at the age of, so he's born in 1922, Agostinho Neto, mm. he in um, a few uh, outside of Luanda, which is the, you know, one of the largest cities in Angola. Um, his family was Methodist and right. his dad was, a yeah, and his dad was a pastor. And then in a country that's extremely Catholic because like Portugal is extremely Catholic. Yeah, what is that? Being Methodist, what did that get for him? Well, it's really interesting. So in at 15 years old, he wins this uh, uh, this uh, scholarship to study at the high school um, in Luanda because there wasn't one in his hometown. Um, and he was given a job as secretary by this um, Methodist, I don't know, I don't know the word, uh, preacher uh bishop i don't know i don't know i don't know the the terminology pastor i think they'd say just maybe uh, okay general sorry i'm not trying i think yeah i'm not trying to be like offensive to any anybody who no uh, my my i just don't as well is more catholic so i don't really know but yeah i'm not i'm i'm jewish so i don't you know i'm doing my best here (laughs) um but this guy named ralph e dodge um Hmm. And so the, and I so was wondering, like, is this kind of an Anglo thing? This is an Anglo element that's around the Methodists? Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking. It had to be, right? Because yeah, like, Methodism is, is like American, I, I feel it, like. I don't mostly. even know. I do not know. <laughs> Sorry. But it's. I'm pretty sure it's some kind of Anglo thing, no? Yeah. Mm, well, we might have to get definitely... into that. Listeners, correct us if we're wrong. Well, I just think it's interesting because it's like, were these, you know. Did uh, that give him some kind of extra channel that he could operate on that allowed him to give him a little independence from the Portuguese colonial establishment? Yeah, exactly. Because he had his own sort of source of of financial support, basically. Um, Mm. You know, so at any rate, so he, he you know, is able to study. He becomes very active in the literary scene in Luanda. Um, and he uh, he's able to uh, eventually after graduating, he gets another um, scholarship from American Methodists. Uh, this one for sure uh, from the Americans. And uh. he's able to go to the University of Coimbra which is the same university I went to, the same one I come right. went to, the same one it's ah. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. They didn't bring him to... So in my Ivan Morris series, Ivan Morris's mother, one of her big do-gooder things that she did was help with the Kenyan airlift. And she supported a, a certain Kenyan 
uh, political figure named Cyrus Karuga to study in the U.S. And that was the same thing that brought Barack Obama's father to the U.S. But Interesting. This, yeah, but here you actually have, well, which makes sense because, you know, that's a, it's an, Kenya is an Anglo colony. But there you have American money in a similar way, taking someone from Angola, putting them in university in Portugal. So it's yeah, a little different, but maybe part of yeah. the same kind of pattern. Well, I, and you have to wonder, like, is this a back channel for, you know, for an American group to sort of try to create like a government in exile that would ultimately come to power you know, in Angola, you know what I mean? Like, I'm is sure they this, want to create like, Juan Guaido figures if if they have a if they end up with an unfriendly government in a former colony. Yeah. Which makes me want to ask, you know, what is the what are the vicissitudes of independent Angola? I'm completely ignorant. Mm, yeah. It, wow. Does NATO can succeed in creating a totally independent thing? Are the people in charge now much more kind of Anglo friendly, imperialist friendly? Mm. And that's it. Could that be part of why his archive is suppressed? That's really interesting. So that's a really good question. Um, I so NATO himself, um, you know, in in the style of so many. Uh, first leaders of of these former um you know colonial you know he doesn't he doesn't last very long as president right he's president for right. four years um uh, but it it was it, it was a pretty sincere break in a lot of ways but after his presidency is over then you have groups that come in um that are friendlier to uh, friendlier to um, sort of colonial interests. I mean, the Angolan conflict overlap, you know, was being supported by like the let's say the dictatorship part of it was being supported, or or factions of it were being supported by like apartheid South Africa. Right. And so it it becomes almost more of like a regional conflict in some ways than a than a national one. Um, And typical story, I think, huh? The IMF, the World Bank, do they get in there? Is there you get your good old neocolonialism? They get their structural adjustment policy. Uh, That's later. That comes later um, in the in the 80s um after his presidency but he does he is able to establish something of a of a political you know his his family members want to be very prominent politicians um or or not necessarily politicians but prominent figures um in in England politics um okay so not totally purged no no um and let's see. And I mean, since then, like, it's in some ways, like, it, it is still dependent on um, 
or not, I shouldn't say dependent. There, there is still a premium put on like cultivating a sort of Lucifone elite <laughs> of some sort that would like go to go to Portugal and like study there and like or or you know study abroad and then come back. Um, mm. But Angola has a lot of natural resources. You know, it's a very, you know, Luanda is a very uh, cosmopolitan city in some ways, but. Um, it's it's a very unstable shall we say sort of political situation there yeah i think you could do a whole episode on angolan politics i, I feel like i'm not giving doing it uh, justice yeah, naturally. I, yeah um okay well that's that's a yeah. glimpse into that i was wondering yeah, i was curious I was, about that after reading your yeah and just thesis. well and just to give people um you know, uh, an idea of like, sort of why was apartheid South Africa, you know, getting involved in the fight? It's like, because they were also, well, first of all, South Africa is not that far. So Angola is sort of um, just above Namibia and Botswana on the west coast of Africa. So Luanda was actually one of the cities um, or the places that like the Portuguese landed you know, because they kind of kept along the coast, more or less, the Portuguese empire was um, a bit different from, uh, like, uh, the French colonial project, for example, they weren't trying to sort of uh, take over a landmass, they were trying to control these ports of trade. Um, and so Luanda was was one of those. So anyway, it's just north of Namibia and Botswana, and then South Africa is like, just below those countries so that's kind of how it becomes wrapped up in this whole regional conflict that really rages like from the 80s to the 90s um and of course we see the long tail end of it now in that whole region in some ways um so although angola still remains pretty unstable um i shouldn't say pretty unstable it i mean whatever the united states is unstable <laughs> at this moment mm. like mm. um <laughs> History moves on. Uh, yeah. History moves on. Yeah. So NATO, to come back to him, Agustin Neto, he is very active um, in the 40s um, and 50s in the communist movement, the Marxist movement in uh, Portugal and, and before that in, in Angola. And of course, this movement is extremely active in advocating for the independence of Angola from Portugal. This is some of the first wave of like what we call it. Like, I mean, of course, there had been movements um, or f fights against uh, colonialism, the colonial empire before. But this is, you know, we talk about like an the anti-colonial movement where typically we historians, you know, put the marker down beginning around this time period. So he's very much part of that. Um, you know, awesome. he's active in youth politics in Portugal. Um, and so, uh, and I mean, you're probably wondering, like, why am I talking about this politician? Um, <laughs> um, and that is because uh, in, in the 50s, he does uh, publish, 50s and early 60s, he publishes um, uh, poems, presumably written during the time when he is imprisoned by, so he's imprisoned by the Estado Novo, he's imprisoned for um, his political actions. And so um, while he's in prison, he 
throughout the 50s, he writes a series of poems. And one of them is called The Massacre at Sao, in Sao Tome, um, Massacre at Sao Tome. Um, and in this poem, he rewrites elements of that Isle of Love story, describing it as um, basically a rape of Africa, which is a metaphor that you see um, in a lot of um, anti-colonial African movements um, from the 50s, you know, through the 60s, 70s. Um, uh, Robin D.G. Kelly writes about uh, this metaphor um, historically in, in his work. So if you're interested in more about that history. Um, so, you so, know, so he does this, name yeah. check. He does name check then the kind of Mother Africa myth is what you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't. Um, yeah. But he... on the other hand, it, I remember you said that um, he doesn't mention uh, any rapes actually happening in the poem, even though the okay. event that it was based on, there were such things which suggest but he maybe he didn't know about them because his one source on it didn't say about this so the absence there in the actual what what should we say the concrete description of the the violent events right one doesn't find sexual violence in this poem as if i as i recall right well yeah so so when i say rape of rape of africa i think yeah exactly yeah so it's it's Is that this, like in the it's beginning a, it's a it's like a metaphor on a metaphorical kind of level. So yeah, so there's no actual like, um, like you were saying, there's no women in this poem. Um, uh, li- like literally, did you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it's about that was part um, of your yeah, yeah. Thesis. There's there's it's all about like you know part of the the rape of Africa trope. Um, or metaphor is it's also very tied up in in masculinity and so part of the articulation of this metaphor and and when I say met like Africa as metaphor meaning like um uh it's this concept of like mother Africa right right and not so I'm not literally talking about like actual like literal women goddess kind of a yes yeah exactly metaphysical yeah which is interesting like in in kamoans right you have venus is this european goddess who is giving access to the women in the other place right whereas Mm -hmm. you know this is very opposite there's a goddess representing africa who is herself suffering the the violence at least in this in this metaphorical moment maybe at the beginning of the poem is it yeah absolutely well and it's it's kind of in the and i'll, I'll read the poem in just a second it's kind of in the, the sort of um method i guess of description like it like it's it's 
it's in this body of this metaphor. It's not necessarily like articulating it as like, it doesn't say like in other poems, he does use like terms like mother Africa and things like this. But in, in this poem, he's not using that literal language. It's sort of, but it's, but it's a poem inscribed in that, that context, if that makes sense. Um, and so part of this, this metaphor is like, it's like, I, as a man, have not effectively defended my country from its ravagings and like, you know, we need to like fight the invader in order to like restore our manhood, basically, is Mm -hmm. is kind of the thrust of that, (laughs) is the thrust of that metaphor um, as a rallying cry for for um counter for you know fight against colonialism um right whereas back in samoan venus is saying uh you poor portuguese you've worked so hard you've done all these labors and so therefore uh you have to recoup that by uh having access to these women in this exotic locale exactly yeah 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 um so there is a kind of a parallelism and, oh are we back hang on i lost you a, a minute there the connection dropped out well, oh and i should mention oh, we're back. I should okay mention, so, so i lost you for a minute there i'm so sorry oh no where did Hello. where did i so the last thing that happened on my end was I said, like, if there's this gender, if there indeed is is this gendered language in Neto, right, then we do have a kind of parallelism there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I was I was saying, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like, he he draws this parallel himself, right? The, the poem ends with this line, you know, for us, the green land of Sao Tome will also be an island of love um ah, and yeah. so he's and you know in the same kind of yeah okay yeah oh. yeah, yeah. so um so just for those um just to kind of continue to give a little bit of ge- geography here before i read the poem so Seltome is not in angola it is an island um off the west coast of africa um it's, it's um kind of near like equatorial guinea um it's like a small island that the portuguese used um for well for slave trading mm. <laughs> mostly um so that makes this poem were... not just a a national poem about angola it's a it's a poem about the continent yeah exactly yeah he's he's sort of alluding to this this broader you know pan-african you know this is this is the one of the early like this is sort of not the beginning but this is an element of like sort of a pan-african anti-colonial struggle um and you know one of the interesting things about Saltomi and Perincipe is that they are two of the only places that could truly be said to have been discovered um by the Europeans in the sense that uh they were uninhabited islands um like truly uninhabited not like uninhabited in the way that like 
colonial, like there was nobody there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they were turned into places where um, that that became important for um, for trade in general, but the slave trade in particular. Um, so I think it's interesting, you know, to 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 talk about those places, um, which were involved in their own uh, in their own uh, anti-colonial and str- their own struggles against the Portuguese uh, colonial power. Hmm. Um, so, okay. So I think what I'll do. Yeah. This might be a good time read to this... read um, these poems a little bit. I'd love to hear. Yeah. I'd love that. I'd love that. So I'm going to read Agostinho Neto's first, and this is a translation from Don Burness, um in the collection Horse of White Clouds. Uh, and so this is, um, Oh, I, I should say before I go into this, this is describing uh, uh, the aftermath of like a real uh, event where right. workers in Satsumi were fighting against um, the the Portuguese colonial powers, and they were and thirty two of them, um, I believe it was, were were well, <laughs> the numbers you know, but were killed um, in this worker struggle. So it's connecting sort of anti-colonialism with, uh, you know, the communist struggle, anti-capitalist, anti-capitalist struggle with, you know, and workers struggle and race, right? It's, it's, it's sort of drawing on all of these things. Um, the only thing that's left out of course, right, is, is the women as real people. Um, <laughs> so the massacre of contract workers on South Domain by Agostinho Neto. For my illustrious friend, Alda Grassa. It was when the Atlantic coughed up corpses, wrapped in white flowers of spume, driven by time and the rough beast of hatred, dancing with death's coagulated blood. Crows and jackals filled the beaches in their animal hunger, devouring mounds of flesh in the sands of earth, burnt by the terror of the years, made slaves in prisons on this land of green hope that children still know of as a land green with hope. It was when the corpses drank their fill of a sea of shame and salt, waters made bloody by desires and weaknesses. It was then that with our eyes filled with fire, now with blood, now with life, now with death, we buried victoriously our dead. And over the graves, we recognized that these men were sacrificed for love, for harmony, for liberty, even before the dance of death driven by time in blood waters even in the small accumulated defeats on the way to our victory. For us, the green land of Sao Tome will also be an island of love. So, Mm. I'm going to read that last little bit in Portuguese as well, just because I think it would be nice to give a little bit of sense of the language itself. Yeah, please. Um, And nós... A terra verde de Saltomé será também a Ilha do Amor. A Ilha do Amor. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Island of yeah. Love, actually. That's a definite article. 
Yeah, there's I you you see it. Um, yeah, you see it. Uh, well, the thing I always think of is like you see like du amor or du chamorish, like you see like of love or of lovers, which is always interesting for me. But here we have du amor. So yeah, the reference to Camoans is is it. Is there anything before the end of the poem that really tells you that it's Camoans that is? Being yeah. Different? So there's this passage here um, where he says, "Waters made bloody by desires and weaknesses." Oh, there you go. So in the Camoans in in the Lusiads, you have um, this discussion of uh, this the the trees being uh, the mul the mulberry trees being like or the not the the cherry trees sorry being like bloody you know with love right mm -hmm. they're like running red with this love and and here we have this as like no this isn't love this is this is desire and weakness like you are not as strong as as you think you are mm -hmm. right like um so that's that's one element that always jumps out to me when I read like this. Um, so the the definite guess, article yeah. really makes it a clear reference, though, to the island of love from Camoens's poem. Yes. Sure yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, would have studied the Lucy. I mean, this kind of gets to the point of like, um, you know everyone in, in Portuguese right. university and I'm sure Brazilian university as well has to read uh this the Lusiad so it's it is really foundational it's like reading um gosh I don't know like yeah I don't even oh, know what the American be, equivalent I mean I'm sure we would be yeah, <laughs> um yeah. Mark Twain maybe or something oh sure um, yeah okay yeah the American uh, voice one of the first yes. people that really codified a canonized American voice. Yeah, that might be Mark Twain, I suppose. Right. So like, you know, you have to keep in mind that like, you know, that's that's part of like where he's coming from. Um, and like the imagery in and of itself, um, you know, he's taking sort of that colonial story um, where like, the you know the noble you know portuguese argonauts they storm the beaches and they like you know have their way with the women and he's saying like no like this is not like the bloodiness of like love and desire this is the bloodiness of like weakness right he's like literally sort of calling them that um another example you know is um in the lusiads we have like the portuguese are compared uh, to like stags, right? These like noble stags, oh, like running true. through, running through here, and and here, you know, they're also compared to animals, but they're crows and jackals, right? Um, uh, so again, like metaphor for the Portuguese there, yeah. Well, so like Camões, yeah, well, because the they are cause... like also oh, has yeah. a certain respect for. Um, he's got this hippie. I mean, it's a it's a very hippie impulse, like. <laughs> he like submission to desires and love and everything is what's going to save the world man is kind of doesn't he have this thing there too so in that oh, sense absolutely like, yeah yeah in that sense it's of a piece with with Camões as well i feel oh say more about that yeah 
Uh, yeah, well, so he he does have this ethics of like love is going to save the world somehow. Like everyone is going to submit more to these desires and uh, it's going to create a world where sovereigns don't uh, dominate over they're the people they rule or something i mean he does he has this kind of um egalitarian vision somewhere at certain moments yeah, yeah? absolutely yeah he was very um well he was a super horny guy yeah <laughs> um but yeah he really has um a sort of uh idealized notion of love um that is uh platonic in a lot of ways right literally like it's, it's very literally not, yeah, not in the popular yeah. sense of course but no no in like oh, the we literal should, yeah like... we wanted to get into that right and i wanted to bring That's this up too because speech. i was afraid maybe last time i didn't get to that as much the the fact that kamois does have some kind of weird vision of he does have some kind of vision of equality which is like progressive for his time perhaps yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, progressive. I don't know. I mean, he, he, well, so the thing about, so in the popular legend, let me back up a little bit. So, in the, so Kamoish hmm. himself, right? He's this guy who, who travels the world. He, um, you know, is able, you know, he spends like the greater part of his, his adult life, like, you know, all over, um, the the portuguese empire and he's writing this poem at a moment when the greatest days of the portuguese empire are behind him right right he's he's yeah yeah the sun's already setting in a way at the moment a hundred yeah yeah, hundred percent. Like they're starting to lose their holdings. Their 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 holdings are being threatened by you know other like rising empires, um, in the United Kingdom, uh, in France and uh, the uh, Netherlands. I always want to say the Peiva, mm. the Netherlands. Mm. Um, and so he. But he finds himself, you know, really like enjoying being amongst all these other cultures. However, he does have a deep and abiding hatred of the more the Muslim. <laughs> like he, yeah, there's that um, probably because he lost his eye uh, in a battle with them. And but he, but he also at the same time does, you know, and and um, Eduardo Lorenzo, who whose work I want to talk about in a little bit. Right. Um, you know, he does point out, he's like, well, for as much as he hates the Muslims, he has a lot of respect for them. I mean, even if we think about the symbol of the astrolabe, yeah. um, uh, that in and of itself is like a, is, is a Muslim, uh, right. you know, invention, not, not invention, but I don't know, gets tricky when you start to like parse like who did what but at least was was you would go to the muslim world in, in right. this time period to that learn how place. to use the astrolabe yeah yeah well and there's a whole a whole character right um almost obligatory even in something like the song of the sid uh you actually get uh friendly muslims in all of these things right orlando furioso the the line between mm -hmm. christian and muslim is very porous and uh, 
you know, there's nothing like this total pathologization that you might see a bit later. No, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and it's funny, like when you read some of the passages, like it is, it is sort of this like, oh, that canny, that canny, like, you know, Muslim, like he tried to get one over on me, but I was too smart for him. It, it, it does very much recall, you know, like so much of the Lusiads, you know, the way that like, um, that like, uh, um, you know, ancient Greek writers would write about like, I don't know, their enemies, right? <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Like, um, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's very much focused on like these territorial battles. Um, and like, my God is the best God and your God is the dumb, yeah. you know? Well, the, and this, the this... obligatory Muslim character converts at the end. Of course. Right. So it's all good. Yeah. But like even the shake that he meets and I guess is a canto too, right? Is is also like, you know, he's duplicitous, but he's also very like wily and clever and like, oh, he's like so good at like, you know, being very hospitable and like we have a good time and like party together. But then like basically the devil, right, puts suspicion into his heart and he turns against us, right? Which is not which is like a, you know, complicated set of relations there. Yeah, the um, devil functions like kind of like a Greek god in that. That I mean, that's another whole thing, like how the the Greek uh, Roman pantheon intersects with the standard crusading kind of thing, which helps to get it past the church censors. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the church censors at the time that the poem is published, they have this. I don't. In my opinion, I find it like hilarious now, um, because in the Lusiads you have both the Christian God. Um, and you also have, uh, you know, Venus, like I mentioned, who supports the Portuguese, you have Bacchus, who is supporting, uh, I guess, the Muslims or, or the Indians, I should say, like Indians as in like from India. Mm. Um, you have, and then, you know, various other, you know, uh, uh, Mercury shows up and Jupiter, like all these other, you know, sort of Roman, Roman gods and goddesses um, and, and demigods as well. And so, but this was written at a time, of course, of, of, of censorship. And so you have, you know, the, the Catholic censor basically writing this note, like, well, it's okay to publish this because the, the pagan gods here are used as like a metaphor and um which and so it's not blasphemous anyway which is yeah. i would say like sort of true <laughs> like yeah. um, he has to be careful to make you know, it just barely like the christian metaphor is the governing one exactly yeah and i and i would say you know to, to, we were talking about like you know him being like kind of a hippie mm. um in a sense like his notion of like this transcendent love is basically you know in, in the platonic sense like that that love is sort of this all-encompassing force in the world that you know drives men to achieve their fates right mm -hmm. so because you you have this because he's an early modern figure and like this is one of the first modern texts in Portuguese you have this 
uncomfortable shift or like this uncomfortable moment where it's like, do men fulfill their own destiny? Like because of the strength of like their virtue or is it like, because they've followed God's law and they're, you know, they will be rewarded in this life and the next. Right. And, you know, this Mm -hmm. Christian theology sort of. And so for, for Kamoish, like, he's like, yeah, you know, man, like gods are love and like love, like is what makes everything so is, is the motivation for everything. And like, the reason that like we were able to colonize all these places is because we like loved so hard and (laughs) like that's why they're governed by venus right Mm. and like you know sort of implicit in this is like you know part of the reason that the portuguese are no longer mighty is because they don't love as fervently um as they once did and so the 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 wheel have as fortuna has turned on them and you know in the the height of irony you know by the time of of kamoisha's death you know that's the same year that portugal loses the crown to spain yeah right so it's really like with his death ends the the greatness of the the portuguese empire and it's because they didn't love hard enough okay okay (laughs) do you do you think there's also like some rosantiman like we did love hard enough we just love but you know there's some way in which in this world you know uh ultimately violent more violent uh empires like spain are just gonna get the upper hand man Mm. um that's what you know i just having gotten into lucifer lu no that's an interesting um twist of the tongue um portugology what do you call it lucifone studies uh, midway mm. into my career, you know, it's interesting the impressions you get of different Portuguese scholars and the way that they understand their history. They always have this thing, which I think you alluded to as well, where they they like to remind you that the Portuguese Empire was only interested in uh, creating the seaborne networks and, you know, wasn't invading and and liquidating societies in the same way that Spain did. Do you think there's this kind of, oh, that kind of ressentiment there as well? Interesting. Yeah. I hmm. I don't think Kamoish would ever admit that the Portuguese fighters were not the, the strongest, mightiest, you know, fighting force, you know, oh, okay. uh, as, as a former soldier himself, like, I don't think he would ever admit Mm-hmm. lack of lack of <laughs> uh, uh we do love strong enough uh, we or no, no we don't love strong enough as you say right yeah what yeah saying? um but as yeah your question you know i think one of the things well one of the things that the kamoish and you know you see this in all a lot of other you know subsequent writings about portugal and and those sort of portuguese self-conception of history is like they like to remind you that portugal is a little house is a little country small um it's small bean right and so i think that's part of it it's like look how much we accomplished from our little you know you know little sliver of land you know so they they kind of transform it into like an underdog story more than like oh yeah um anything else like i i I'm trying to think if I've seen like other 
you know, I could see maybe I haven't studied the Estado Novo as like deeply, but I could see like the Estado yeah, Novo, the, the dictator dreams of more power. Yeah, like I wonder if they were like, we fucked up, like we should have been more, you know, more violent, more um, mm. aggressive, like in in repopulation, you know, um, yeah, that kind of thing. Everybody I, I can't to say that. is just like, uh, yeah, we were good. We did amazing things for how little we are. And uh, that's that's good. That's about enough for one um, <laughs> eon, you know, one universe, like for the rest of time, yeah. we're just fine just chilling here oh 100 percent. yeah i think that's that's a lot of the vibe i get and just to to like give a little geography i you know i used to be is that sorry there's construction should i go close the window Can i can't hear, hear anything no it's fine okay cool all right um so like portugal has basically natural borders um and mm-hmm. it's some of the oldest contiguous borders in europe so um you have uh to the north and to the east you have basically uh, like mountains that mm-hmm. uh, block it from from Spain, and then to the to the west and the south, you have the ocean. So it is like this little kind of sliver of land, you know, the crown of Europe. It's where it's where the the it's where Europe ends and the sea begins. Right is is sort of the the right. conception that Kamoish gives of it, and that subsequent writers you know refer to. Um, you know, I'm sure if you go like do like tourist stuff in Portugal, they'll tell you that too, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of the 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 cliche line. Um, so actually, maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about Bishop again and and Brazil. Yeah, and you should read a little bit from Bishop that... too. Yeah, so like, mm-hmm. yeah, so like you know, Elizabeth Bishop, she's in Brazil in the 50s, so she's writing basically at the same time. Um, as Agustin and Neto, of course, they don't know about each other, but they both, you know, so, so Brazil is kind of interesting case. It was, um, in a, in a manner, not entirely dissimilar from the United States in a certain way. Well, I shouldn't say that. So Brazil becomes the seat of, um, the, the Portuguese crown. Right. Yeah. Um, That's. That's quite different from the United States, actually. It's as if the crown actually goes to Brazil, right? The crown goes to Brazil and then, you know, a prince declares its independence from Portugal. Hmm. So this is how Brazil becomes its own nation. Um, Golpe de Iparinga. And so it's, it's, it's conflict, you know, Brazil was a colony, but it's also kind of its own thing. Like it's, yeah. Um, but, and it's also much larger than Portugal geopolitically. It becomes much more important. Um, and like most Portuguese speakers in the world live in Brazil. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a big um, contrast. You know, I was going around looking at Japan related documents, right? In uh, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Going from Spain to Portugal, there's a big difference in attitude and relationship to the former colonies. Uh, in and there, there's a way in which like Brazil is bigger than Portugal. Oh, absolutely! And like I feel like you see that you really feel that when you like hear about sort of the way that um, 
the, the way that the Portuguese people now and like, you know, historically have like thought and talked about, about Brazil. Like it's definitely kind of like, oh, like we, that used to be ours. And then they kind of overtook us, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is a really interesting, really interesting dynamic, I think. Um, and that was kind of what I was saying about like the United States. Like that was kind of why I brought it up because you could see a sort of similar dynamic. Oh, I see what um, you mean. Yeah. In that sense between the United Kingdom the special and the United relationship. States, right? And the yeah, yeah. the way that yeah, the United and that, States like, the gets United... definitely the upper hand in that. Yeah, it's wealthier. It's you know, it's got a larger population. Like it, it kind of becomes the center uh, in a way that, like the United Kingdom, you know, arguably it begins to decline. Um, right. So maybe the the parallel ends there maybe it's not a helpful one but i was just trying to like kind of give a a sense of um that's interesting to think about um so so elizabeth bishop she's like the expat she's living although we say she's an expat i will say she was like living with a brazilian woman so she does have some sort of you know interaction with like like local people uh although you know this woman that she she has a relationship with um lota you know, she's from a very wealthy family. I think she was born in Paris. Um, you know, so she's definitely living a very rarefied life uh, uh, in Brazil, although not a happy one. You know, Bishop at this time, you know, she's an alcoholic. She, Lota is very emotionally unstable. Like they're fighting a lot. Um, anyway, so so Bishop and her rewriting of the Island of Love story, you know, it, so Augustino Neto, he rewrites the story um from a contemporary point of view you know comparing uh so or turning Sao Tome into the island of love um and and using a contemporary example of a of the massacre of workers there contract workers or modern day slaves um and so for him it's like this very immediate struggle he's he's really pulling uh into the 20th century um bishop for her part she rewrites the landing of the new argonauts the elusiads um as if they were coming to brazil now to be clear the elusiads they never go to in the in the poem itself they never go to brazil um but you know brazil was very much uh part of the same sort of age of exploration um that Kamoish is is writing about it's just they didn't actually go there in the poem so mm. and I too the poem in is- reading the canto nine kept thinking oh this totally happened this you're describing things that happened at all different places you just rolled up on some poor woman right Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sh- yeah. Like I, I did at very... one point in a moment of insanity trying to figure out exactly where it's taking place. And I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. But yeah, it's a very typical of like it's in diaries raping and pillaging. Yeah. No, it it must have been a very typical thing and, and Bishop there surely is is just gesturing to a, a very widespread phenomenon that would have been happening all over the Portuguese world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the name of the poem that she writes about it is called Brazil, January 1st, 1502. Um, 
So I think what I will do, and it appears in the collection Brazil, <laughs> appropriately enough. Um, and I believe this poem was first published in the New Yorker, uh, and then and then it was published in in this collection. And you know what? I think to read this, I am going to close the window because it's a distracting trees. So just give me one second. All right. You there? Sure. All right. All right. Brazil, January 1st, 1502. Embroidered nature, tapestry landscape. Landscape into art by Sir Kenneth Clark. January's nature greets our eyes exactly as she must have greeted theirs. Every square inch filling in with foliage. Big leaves, little leaves, and giant leaves, blue, blue-green, and olive, with occasional lighter veins and edges, or a satin underleaf turned over. Monster ferns in silver-gray relief, and flowers, too, like giant water lilies up in the air, up, rather, in the leaves. Purple, yellow, two yellows, pink, Rust red and greenish white, solid but airy, fresh as if just finished and taken off the frame. A blue-white sky, a simple web, backing for feathery detail. Brief arcs, a pale green broken wheel, a few palms, swarthy, squat but delicate. And perching there in profile, beaks agape. The big symbolic birds keep quiet, each showing only half his puffed and padded, pure colored or spotted breast. Still in the foreground, there is sin. Five sooty dragons near some massy rocks. The rocks are worked with lichens, gray moonbursts splattered and overlapping, threatened from underneath by moss in lovely hell green flames. Attacked above by scaling ladder vines, oblique and neat. One leaf yes and one leaf no in Portuguese. The lizards scarcely breathe. All eyes are on the smaller female one, back to her wicked tail straight up and over, red as a hot wire. Just so the Christians, hard as nails, tiny as nails and glinting, in creaking armor, came and found it all, not unfamiliar. No lovers' walks, no bowers, no cherries to be picked, no lute music, but corresponding nevertheless to an old dream of wealth and luxury, already out of style when they left home. Wealth plus a brand new pleasure. Directly after mass, humming perhaps La Marmée, or some such tune, they ripped away into the hanging fabric, each out to catch an Indian for himself. Those maddening little women who kept calling, calling to each other, or had the birds waked up, and retreating, always retreating behind it. Oh, wow. 
Huh. Yeah. Elizabeth Bishop, ladies and gentlemen. She's Yeah, they go into the landscape. It's it's a what was the word again? The hanging tapestry. Again, the hanging fabric. Hanging fabric. Yeah, yeah the landscape itself mm -hmm. is described as a hanging fabric. Yeah, that's interesting. The tapestry yeah. image is is right there, isn't it? Yeah, and one of the lines I love in this poem is, you know, she says, um, a, a, an old dream of wealth and luxury already out of style when they left home. Um, and oh, that yeah. really recalls what we were talking about, about Kumwesh, you know, writing this um, elegy of, me, elegy, this ode to the Portuguese empire at a time when it's already out of style. It's already falling apart. Yeah. Reminds me of the entire experience of being trained as a Japanologist, actually. Mm. And this time, it's it's the one that's kind of was falling out of fashion. Everyone was training in Chinese studies much more. Um, but it actually is this really productive moment, too, where we can step outside of a lot of Cold War ideology um, in the field now. So fascinating stuff oh, that's really interesting yeah. yeah yeah and so here you know we have like um you know the 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 to catch an indian for himself you know we have mm. you know she's first of all i think i think the thing that really surges to mind i should say in this poem is like and it really helps if you like look at like a medieval tapestry, you know, it opens with this very like dense efflorescence of like flora, right? It's like extremely green. It takes up most of the frame of the poem. Uh -huh. um, and then the Portuguese like insert themselves into this, into this sort of efflorescence and um you know the the things that they are chasing are you know she's described variously as lizards birds right you have this like dehumanization right of the the native people in a way even as she like clearly is you know sympathy you know the, the women are present in this poem in a way that they weren't in nettos right we actually have yeah. real women yeah. here um uh, and and we don't have this sort of patriarchal like Mother Africa sort of motif or you know whatever. But at the same time, we have this this sort of like European othering or Anglophone like othering of the native people, right? It's this it's this verdant like untouched landscape with these creatures in it that are that is being violated rather than like well the violators um, too you know. are described as these little nails in the sun mm -hmm. right their armor i guess is being likened if you zoom out far enough it's just like a little little piece of metal moving along yeah well hanging up a tapestry maybe right right oh, so hard as nails oh wow yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard as nails, tiny as nails, and glinting and creaking armor. Yeah. Oh. Um, and so some of the explicit references to the lovers, um, the island of love in this, 
Um, you know, no lovers walks, no bowers, no cherries to be picked, no loot music. So these are all details taken from Kamoisha's description of the Isle of Love. Yeah. Things okay. that, that were found there. That's a very clear reference then. The NATO poem, is there more about the Island of Love in the title of it? What was the title again? Um, a Massacre at South Homing. Oh, okay. Um, no, I mean... So the, the, so the, the reference, reference is really mostly the the last line, like this will become the island of love, and then um, it's that, and then it's also in the descriptions of um, transposing the 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 noble stags of the Portuguese into um, you know describing them landing on the beaches in the same uh, way that takes place in in the Isle of Love uh, story, yeah. Um, but instead of it, them being these like noble stags, they are, um, you know, cr jackals and crows. Yeah. And those are um, actually coming it, from the land and what lands on the beach is the corpses. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Like this sort of like transposition. Um, oh. yeah. and then you also have, um, the, in the description of like, sort of the, the description of the blood, like I mentioned, you know, going from being like blood as like a metaphor for love um, into blood as a metaphor or metaphor as a description of death. Right. Um, right. The flowing of blood. Um, yeah. But it's, it's not like, like super explicit, but, and then there's also this whole like complicated thing about like the green metaphor in these poems, but I don't know that I really. <laughs> I, there was an I, interesting I, I, use like, of the word green, right? Green was used as a for some emotion that I I wouldn't always associate it with. Yeah, so green in um, uh, in the Neto poem is a symbol of hope, mm. um, and whereas in uh, in a Bishop's poem, right, we have green as a symbol of of sin of hell um she says the lovely hell green flame green flames yeah that's interesting mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then you know in um in uh uh Kamoish, we have green as a symbol of um love hmm. <laughs> basically okay um, foliage uh growth, yeah love and, and like mm -hmm, yeah and like so um you kind of have these these very different um green flame would be would that come from an image of some kind of alchemical ritual or something <laughs> some strange oh that's interesting strange metal yeah burned that we don't normally burn and, and it creates a strange flame Oh, I love that. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. Yeah, love. I just thought it was like a further extension of the the, the verdant sort of color palette. But I love your description. That might historically be, yeah. There's um, I remember the last video game I ever played for any length of time was uh, Super Smash Brothers Melee, and uh, Ganondorf when he punches you, he he sets you on purple fire. And that's part of his evil powers, right? I love that. So I think that, yeah, strange colors of fire are definitely seen as evil in some kind of uh, iconographic tradition here.
Oh, very interesting. And speaking of yeah, that, I could definitely see speaking that. of that sort of thing, yeah. I've um we were discussing a little bit uh the Neoplatonic element here, you know? And I guess I will bring in I, I was I've been reading and I may say a lot more on the podcast about this, but I read the game of Saturn uh that uh you know, like Recluse has recommended this. Mm-hmm. And I finally got a hold of it. Um, it's written by a guy and it's on a press that may not be sort of um, against this sort of thing, actually. Uh, but it makes a convincing case that the Sola Busca Taroki are a tool of malevolent, uh, malevolent, like attack magic, assault magic. Did he say? Mm. And it uses uh, draws on a Neoplatonic worldview that comes from Byzantine sources like George Gemistos Plethon. But it the Italian city state leaders are only interested in seeing a kind of transgressive North African, like Punic, you know, Moloch kind of um they're only interested in drawing a kind of Satanism from it, right? Which they can use to to work evil on their enemies. And there's there's a lot of purple. There's a lot of you know, um, ominous colors there in that deck as well. Uh, and it speaks to a kind of dark heart of European, um, you know, like the Crusader, uh, mm-hmm. the. Yeah, a kind of dark heart of Europe that is awakening at that moment, which um, Kamoinch, I can't quite put him there. You know, he has a much more happy-go-lucky kind of worldview. But the original Neoplatonic worldview that, that you know, whether you're as dark as someone like the creators of the Solobuska Taroki take this in a very dark uh, direction someone like Kamoinch is maybe a lot more Apollonian but mm-hmm. there is this Neoplatonic worldview right which which exists uh, in parallel with a more kind of orthodox Christian worldview right and you were suggesting that you can you can uh, discuss Kamoinch in this way as well in connection with this as well yeah well just to you know piggyback on a little bit of what you said there like yeah i think one of the things and i can get into some of like the more technical details here but i'm I'm also mindful of of our time but Mm. um you know one of the things that kamoish is trying to do in the lusiads is use the language of um the roman gods um both to create a foundational myth for the Portuguese people, but also as a form of like autofiction. Like he is willing uh, and creating an image of himself that he is putting out into the world. Yeah. And I think when we think about like sort of uh, literature as like magic in this sense where you're literally casting a spell i think we can yeah. say that kamoish was extremely successful in this 
um, you know, his mm. own Neoplatonism was not deeply studied, um, perhaps in the way that, you know, the sources you're talking about would have been. Um, it was it was sort of an intuitive and an ambient one that, that he picked up from um, sources that he would have been familiar with, right? But it wasn't like he was like sitting around reading, um, you know, spell books or anything like that, right? But he 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 had this sense and we can see it most clearly um, in the way that he uses the Roman pantheon um, as an expression of the sort of perfect and perfectible world, right? And then, and the mm. power of words and um, symbology to manifest that world in a certain way. Like that was yeah. his sort of latent belief. Um, and uh, this actually, maybe this is a little bit of a transition, but I think it it directly relates is, um, you know, talking about these rewritings of, of the Island of Love. I talked about the ones from, from the fifties. Um, but then we get into like the heart of the Estado Novo, the the Portuguese dictatorship in the 60s and 70s, and they use the Lusiads as a propaganda tool, and it was created mm. as a propaganda tool. And if we if we think about sort of uh, maleficent energy that can be like sort of expressed through a work of literature, you know, Kamoish didn't think of it as as bad, but I think we can all sort of objectively agree from from the standpoint of you know 2024 that uh, mm. colonialism not a good thing. Um, yeah. uh, that you know there is like this energy in this text that he articulates that was then able to be capitalized by the dictatorship to support itself, and so that's you know, when the dictatorship falls, you know, in the late 70s and, and in the early, or I guess mid-70s, you have writers being like, well, is Kamoish like necessarily evil? Like, is it is it even possible to engage with Kamoish in a way that doesn't acknowledge that it was like a tool of dictatorship? Um, uh you know, and then there's a writer, Eduardo Lorenzo, who who's you know was a was a Marxist and is a really incredible Kamoish scholar. You know, he's the one who sort of identifies this Neoplatonic uh, energy that Kamoish's language is able to. You know, one of the things that I don't think is captured when we read it in English translation is that it's written in ottavo rima, which is like this really um, uh, rhythmic sort of form of language you know hmm. um that's very like captivating and he is you know he makes the argument like well just because it's got like this sort of um this sort of uh, uh dark power at the heart of it you know that was used by the dictatorship doesn't mean that we should abandon Kamoyish. like there is still value in like rewriting these texts um, in a, in you know, we can reclaim it for the left. Uh, we can reclaim the power of this language and and this pantheon for the left. Um, I'll admit, I love Lorenzo. Like I've I've read a lot of his work. Um, I think he's right about the Neoplatonic elements. I am not as certain about 
whether uh, it is reclaimable. It can be rewritten um, in a way that doesn't ultimately capitulate to these same sort of dark tendencies at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was very much your your thesis in uh, in a nutshell. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is what it is. It's probably not going to save the world single handedly, whatever it it is. Um, he does have like a certain. I wanted to maybe read from the Oxford World Classics version. Yeah. Um, in in Canto Nine, Cupid looks and he saw. Throughout the world, not one ruler anxious for the public good. Whatever love they felt was for themselves and for others like them. He saw that instead of honest truth, the hangers-on at palaces peddle flattery, which serves no prince's need to separate the growing wheat from weed. So right there, you know, see, he's trying to sell mm-hmm. ideology to princes, for sure. Mm-hmm. I can tell you how to separate wheat from weed. There is some good thing that princes need to do. Um, but the problem is that they're not doing it. And that's because they have they feel insufficient love for perhaps uh, all of their subjects. And instead, they just feel for love for uh, those themselves and others like them. So there's there is this kind of progressive thing that that Kamoinch would consciously probably say that he's doing. Right. And so from on this neoplatonic angle, then uh, we can't say that. Can, in what sense, I, I didn't get a chance to read the Lorenzo book um, that you very helpfully turned me on to. Thank you again. Um, but w- could you perhaps tell me what does he, how does he see Neoplatonism here? I, I don't think, you know, my limited understanding of that, I would look for some kind of ascent through the spheres, right? We want to get to the realm of the fixed stars. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah. So for Kamoish, the way yeah. that his Neoplatonic view is articulated um, is pretty subtle. I think the, the the one of the key elements of his worldview um, is that the world was not born out of chaos. That in fact it it is born of of, of a perfection that has then become degraded. Um, and because people have like, you know, like your example you gave with the king, right? The the kings do not sufficiently love their people and therefore like the world has become degraded and we've fallen from this platonic like sort of perfect sphere. And in order to get back to that, you know, it's a very positive, you know, like, right. you know, he's like, in order to get back to that, we need to like once again, you know, fall into love. Um, he's, or, he's talking about improving the world rather than escaping from it. So in that sense, Absolutely. it's not not very Neoplatonic. Well, yeah, well, I think a good I, there's a great bit from Canto Nine mm-hmm. um, that kind of that kind of uh, clarifies like his his sort of view here. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's so astonished. Veloso, who's one of the soldiers, gave a great shout. Men, he said, this is a rare hunting. If ancient pagan rites survive, these woods are sacred to the nymphs. We have found more than the human spirit could ever desire. Plainly, wonders exist and marvels are apparent, though the world hides this from the ignorant. 
Oh, okay. Though the world hides this from the ignorant, right? So that's a kind of so this is this is kind of he's a bit of a return guy, but like yeah, yeah, exactly. And like we need to like reestablish these like ancient rights that are gonna like you know re-enchant the world in this way okay um and some of what you were saying would earlier would seem to suggest an eternal world not a created one so that would also be neoplatonic yeah very much you know because he refuses to believe that like the world was born out of chaos like he you know he this we see more um in his sonnets and in the lusiads but um yeah, it's it's this idea that like when I say he's a return guy, I mean like return to like ancient Rome or maybe even like pre, you know, pre uh, sort of Roman civilization, like this sort yeah. of well, not like Garden uh, of Eden. Is it? I mean, it could be Semitic in that sense, right? Um. Yeah, there is definitely a lot of Edenic sort of, uh, uh, yeah, language yeah. here. Absolutely. Um, but, with but is that the just the cover story? That that was what I was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> that's my that's my suspicion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's that like, um, you know, that the material world, like he doesn't have this sort of like you were saying like this disgust for the material world in the same way he just feels like yeah um because he he does see all things as an emanation of love so like the but but that the world is like you know that the portuguese are losing their empire because they didn't love enough right because they haven't sort of engaged in this like primordial um set of like rituals or or, or beliefs in a sincere enough way right their star has fallen right but it isn't it isn't a disgust for the world in that sense like the the sphere you know he wants to return the world to perfection um wow. uh in that way yeah i see i don't know if that that yeah continuing that passage i was reading from before 29 28 he saw those whose duty was to show god's love to the poor and charity to all let's be the clergy i guess fawning instead on power and wealth in a parody of truth and justice they call foul tyranny order and false severity firmness passing laws in the interest of the king while the rights of the people are decreasing uh, and it, the culmination of this is the um, a punishment. So Cupid, this is Eros, deciding to punish people, uh, to whip them into shape. And I think this would very much harmonize with what you're saying, right? Uh, 29, he saw in short none loving what they should, but all led astray by perverse desires and was no longer willing to postpone their harsh but fitting, fitting punishment. He summoned reinforcements to take to battle sufficient levies to establish a proper sense of awe in all those disobedient to his law. That is the law of Cupid, the law of love. Yeah. And, you know, Lorenzo has this beautiful line when he's writing about this. He says, um, let me see if I can. Yeah, here we go. He says, Humor no hay otra cosa que primera. So he says, for, primera. For, for, no. 
yeah, for Kamoyish, like, and this is where his neoplatonism is articulated. He's, you know, for for Kamoyish, love is nothing but like the 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 first reality, the first yeah. level order. Of well, reality. you could say original, it, yeah, original equality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, you could connect that to like the Buddhist doctrine of. You could compare it to the Buddhist doctrine of original enlightenment. The idea that everything. Mm -hmm. Everyone, everything is already enlightened and it just needs to realize it. A lot of people. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So maybe, maybe I'm coming around now. Maybe, maybe Lorenzo has a point that there is a, there is a way for, you know, that, that Kamoish does not necessarily have to be a, uh, that there is a leftist argument for for engaging engaging with Kamoish. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's it's a fascinating and he's a fascinating and complex person. I'm sure you know. Um, I think I mentioned last time that his first publication ever was a frontispiece poem to a catalog of new drugs. He seems to have been a drug dealer in some capacity. Yeah, it's it's not super clear exactly. He was what he was up to in uh in um was it Orta? Was it Malaga? Yeah, Garcia de Orta, <laughs> Colloquios de Simples Drogas e Coisas Medicinais de India. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was arrested. Let me see. So yeah, he's arrested um in uh well, he's arrested a bunch of times, but um, at some point he's given a job like managing one of these um, or like a minor job, like in a colony somewhere and Macau. That's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so he's in Macau. Oh, he makes it to Macau. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, he goes all over. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's a trustee for the dead and absent of Macau. And he spends up to a year visiting Malacca and the Malacus en route. So, yeah. Mm. So he's, you know, if he was a drug dealer, he would have had a lot of opportunity yeah. <laughs> that way. Um, you know, he's arrested a bunch of times. He's constantly broke. Mm. Um, he's got some shady friends. You know, I would believe it. Seems plausible. Yeah. Fascinating yeah. figure. So um, with that, I think uh, that's what we have time for today. Um, I want to thank you, Min, for coming by. It's wonderful to benefit from your expertise here. Yeah, absolutely. It was really fun to get to talk a little bit about this research. I feel like, um, you know, not many people in the Anglophone world are aware of Portuguese at all and, uh, you know, Kamoish in particular. And so I really encourage you all to at least at least page through a little bit of it. It's, it's, it's definitely a vision into, a, into another world. It teaches us, doesn't it, in microcosm, how Europe is actually first created in the age of exploration and by its, its act of... Um, well, first the Crusades, of course, but then uh, the Age of Exploration. Uh, on the linguistic register as well, you know, you mentioned how, I mean, this this poem sort of defines Portuguese literature. And similarly with linguistics, right, a lot of the materials I deal with 
are are interestingly excluded from the canon of Japanese literature because they're sort of mm. contaminated by this European influence. Uh, but the people that deal with, do deal with them are linguists, right? Because there's so many missionary linguistics materials. And so my teachers in that sort of zone uh, pointed out to me very interesting facts, such as that the first uh, Portuguese Latin dictionary ever was written in Japan by a, a missionary. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it survives in Lisbon today, but it's handwritten, three enormous volumes. Uh, and it was written in Japan. You know, this whole, the the imperative to document and sort of create, in a way, these languages uh the impulse comes from, of course, the need to document all kinds of uh, other languages from other parts of the world that uh, now need to be documented and learned for missionary purposes at this time. So the the very framework of defining what Portuguese is comes from these encounters in all these new uh, places of discoveries, as they say. Yeah, there's a there's a great line in, in the Lusiads where he says that Portuguese is Latin well declined. Um, ah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Which I love. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful language and uh, very complex and interesting uh, poet that I think shows us a lot. Uh, Minute, where can listeners find you? Would you have anything that you'd like to plug? Oh, um. Let's see. You can find me on the app formerly known as Twitter. I am Min the Rose, M-I-N. Um, also on Blue Sky, uh, I have a website, MinTheRose.com. You can see some of my other writings. Um, I've also I've actually written about another incredible uh, Lucifone writer from Brazil. I'd love to plug here. Um, a very Gnostic uh, uh, writer herself, Clarice Lispector. Um, so I've got um, an essay up about her as well as um, some other things. I also um, have a story uh, linked on my website that might be of interest to your listeners um, about, uh, it's a fictional story, but it's about a secret society that uh, George Bataille uh, was running in Paris in the 1950s or 40s, I should say. Um, so that might be All might right. be of interest. Um, right. And uh, yeah, so and I'm also I'm also working right now on a art book um, about the Walter Benjamin's The Arcades Project. So right. uh, follow, yeah, follow me. You can see about that. It is, I was hoping to have the manuscript done by now, but uh, the end is in sight. So yeah, <laughs> stay, so. stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, happy writing so. in the meantime. And uh, I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. I wish I could give all I'm longing to give. I wish I could live like I'm longing to live. I wish I could do 
All the things that I can do, though I'm way overdue, I'd be starting anew.